0: DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info.
1: Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. It's yet again Friday, and uh, we're finishing up... An, another week on the show. Um, I don't know where how things are in your part of the state right now, but for the first time in days, the sun is out here in metro Atlanta, and I don't even remember what it looked like when the sun was out, but I'm really glad it is, and I hope you are too. Um, the sun is shining on our panel today. We've got a terrific one to talk about all that's happening in political news, starting with my Friday partner on the show, Patricia Murphy, political reporter, and political columnist. She writes Political Insider uh, that's published on Wednesdays and Sundays in the AJC and oversees the jolt, uh, the daily look at a variety of issues in politics, little tidbits of stories. Patricia, how are you?
0: I'm doing great. How are you?
1: Good. I'm I'm very glad you're here today. A little later in the show, uh, we're going to talk a bit about a couple of columns you've written in the past week, both of which I think are going to be of real interest uh, for our panel to discuss. So thanks for being here uh, today. We're joined by Tammy Greer again today, professor of political science at Clark Atlanta University. How are you, Tammy?
2: I'm amazing. Thank you for having me back.
1: <laughs> yeah, We're glad you're here. And we're joined by Charles Bullock, uh, the Richard Russell professor of political science at the University of Georgia and Uh, Chuck, I don't think it is a stretch to say that given that you started your career at Georgia in like 1968, you are without question the dean of political science professors in the state of Georgia. There are very few people who have seen the history of the state the way you have.
3: Been been around a long, long time, yes.
1: Also, uh, as we move into getting closer to reapportionment, redistricting, we should say you're the author of a very uh, trenchant and successful book about redistricting, Redistricting the Most Political Activity in America. So uh, at some point today, we're going to talk a bit about redistricting in our show. But but I'd like to start, uh, if, if I may, with um, the story about B.J. Pack, Patricia, the former U.S. attorney of the Northern District in Georgia, I think it was January 4th, if I may have that date correct, the day before the runoff election here, that PAC startled a lot of people by abruptly resigning from his job to take effect just immediately. For quite a while, it's been supposed that he was responding to the fact that President Trump continued to pressure officials in the state to declare that George's election had uh, been rigged, that there were lots of uh, ballots that had come in from suspect locations, um, and that, in fact, he had won the state. And now we've learned unequivocally, because PAC testified in late August in front of a Senate Judiciary Committee looking into Trump's uh, attempts to overturn the election, and he confirmed it. I'll just read you one paragraph, and then I want to have you jump in. Here's what the transcript of PAC's testimony to the Senate Judiciary Committee says, among other things. Mr. Donahue, who was acting deputy U.S. Attorney General, relayed to me that the president was very unhappy. He wanted to fire me, that he believed I was a never-Trumper. And Mr. Donahue told me that he had told Mr. Trump he thought that was incorrect, and the president didn't care, but wanted me out of that Spot and so Pack Patricia resigns rather than allowing himself to be fired.
0: Yes, that's exactly right. We knew the timing of this. Uh, we did not know the details of exactly why BJ Pack left, exactly when he did, which was just a day before those Senate runoff elections here in Georgia. Um, and what we learned from um, from the transcripts that, and all the testimony that he's given to the Senate is that. Um, Really what Donald Trump was so mad about was that BJ Pack, just like Attorney General William Barr, had said there is no evidence of widespread fraud in Georgia. And that, for Donald Trump, was really a red line that he should not have crossed. And so he was told—we um, learn also not only about sort of the president's push to overturn the election in Georgia, but there were even, even other ideas inside the Department of Justice that never happened. And including probably the most out there idea um, was a suggestion from the head of the civil division of DOJ to get the state Senate to send them a letter not to certify the election for um, for Joe Biden. And that was something that um, that B.J. Peck and another DOJ official dismissed as bat blank crazy. They were just. Yeah. They're beyond alarmed about the suggestions coming out of the Trump White House. And so all of this is relevant, not just so that we sort of can build a timeline and see what happened, um, but there's an ongoing federal investigation into, um, not federal, I'm sorry, there's an ongoing um, state investigation here going into Donald Trump and Fonnie Willis's office in Fulton County. And she's in, she's investigating him for um, election interference, possible conspiracy, and so this really layers in details we didn't know before. It's likely that Willis's office knows these details already. But we didn't know exactly how much was going on at the time. And I, this will not be the last we hear about this.
1: No, it certainly won't. So just to, to spell that out a little bit more, Richard Donahue, the acting deputy attorney general who called uh, PAC at apparently like a midnight call to say Trump wants you fired. Uh, They were friendly, Donahue and uh, PAC. So it was a friendly phone call. Um, But PAC and Donahue had also uh, talked when Jeffrey Clark, the head of the Civil Division, had sent this letter down to Georgia saying the state legislature ought to come together and uh, decertify uh, Biden as a victor. And that's when uh, this comment came from both PAC and Richard Donahue saying, that's crazy. That's bat as crazy. <laughs> um, Charles, wh- the other thing is um, that when—Pack P- told the committee that when he heard about the telephone call, the now infamous call between Trump and Brad Raffensberger, he- here's what Pack said about it. I was very upset. At the same time, very disappointed because the call, the summary of the description about the call, indicated that despite at least me and also the Attorney General, William Barr, reporting up that there had been no widespread fraud, the president was seeking to overturn the election or at least find ballots or represent that there was irregularity. And This is coming from a man who served in the legislature as a Republican, Chuck. Chuck, are you on mute?
3: Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm on mute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you were breaking up there, which is probably more my problem being where I am and the kind of service I get than anything else. But, yeah, uh, this is all part of a you know, most distressing series of events where the President of the United States is, was behaving much like a – we would particularly, I guess, describe as a dictator who uh, uh, wants to stay in power and will do anything possible to retain that power. And it doesn't really matter uh, how many times the charges he has made were disproven, the counting of the ballots by hand. I mean, just it's kind of incredible. I mean, it's one thing to make the charge, gee, I think maybe the, 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 there was something wrong with the election. But after all the evidence that came forward, which disproved all of his charges, and then to continue even today – Uh, 11 months afterwards to continue to make those charges. Um, And this is just incorrigible behavior and uh, that people like B.J. Pack were willing to stand up against the president of their party, the man who had appointed him to that position and say, no, you cannot go there. Uh, We all owe him, Bill Barr and a number of others uh, within that Republican administration a great deal of 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 appreciation for being willing to take those kinds of stands, which are so unpopular, continuing to be unpopular with their own fellow partisans.
1: You know, Tammy, it would be one thing if we were looking at what happened at this transcript and what happened to PAC in August as if it were history, Uh, but it's not. This is an ongoing uh, matter. This is, this, we continue to have uh, Republican officials in the legislature especially, and in some in Congress, who continue to, to promote the fraudulent notion that the election in Georgia was stolen, Tammy?
2: Correct. Um, n- new are those that are candidates running for office at this time, um, as well as those that are incumbents and in seeking re-election. Um, so it's very interesting um, and disturbing to see that uh, one of the the fundamental foundations of our republic is in jeopardy, and that is you know for folks to be able to have the ability to vote um, safely and securely, and then their votes to be accepted by those that are in office. Um, if I could, I also wanted to to note that I understand that we have um admiration for those that Um, stood up and and called into play, you know, what happened toward the end of the former president's um, administration. Um, I think it's also important to also note that, you know, when there is passiveness in some of the the breadcrumbs leading up to the bigger cake, that we see that, you know, there was a pattern of behavior. And um, I'm curious as to what were those individuals' um, interventions um, as, while the situation was smaller in the, in the smaller bite um, before we got to that larger chunk. So um, when we look at the political behavior of those candidates and elected officials currently in office, if we take it from their totality and not just one particular circumstance, um, I hope that we have better outcomes moving forward.
1: All right. Fair enough. Patricia, uh, any last thoughts about this before we move on?
0: Well, I think um, the Republican Party itself in Georgia is really at a crucial point um, because they have a number of statewide candidates who are um, it's really the litmus test in the statewide Republican primaries. Do you think Donald Trump won the last election? And if your if your answer is no, (laughs) if your answer is no, I think Joe Biden won it's gonna be really hard for Republican statewide candidates to really win over um, a lot of the Trump base in 2022. And that's just a really dangerous place to be. It's not about principles. It's not about um, uh, the more conservative issues. Uh, It's not about the economy. It's not about a lot of the areas where Republicans have been so successful recently. It really is just about Donald Trump and the last election. And uh, that could be a big problem for Georgians, depending on the choices they make.
1: All right. Um, well, we, it's interesting that we finally see how that uh, uh, BJPAC uh, resignation really played out. And, and it's a fascinating uh, story. Um, Patricia, I, I want to talk a little bit about the state Labor Department, because uh, the AJC reported a story the other day that um, raises real questions about how uh, the commissioner, Mark Butler, and his team used money that came from both federal and state grants that were supposed to be used for uh, unemployment, a a good portion of which were supposed to be used for those who uh, needed unemployment benefits. And what we've learned is that for a year, the Labor Department spent $1,112,000 Purchasing meals from employ for employees from March of 2020 through June of 2021. Um, Mark Butler says he got permission from DOAS Department of Administrative Services to pay for this, but it's an but but the Inspector General has now said it was an abusive practice uh, and that there was no real authorization for it. So Labor Department employees for a year got free lunches. One more uh, 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 part of this from Butler is, look, we wanted to keep our people working. So we didn't want them to take breaks for lunch. We wanted to bring food right to them. Fair enough. Uh, and also, he didn't want to expose them to places where they might be uh, vulnerable to getting COVID while they were eating. Um, so comment on this. I, this is really a, a kind of an astonishing story.
0: Well, it's astonishing for a couple of reasons. Obviously, the dollar amount, um, you know, more than a million dollars on Chick-fil-A, basically <laughs> Chick-fil-A and Fox Brothers, um, which are both delicious. Um, but uh, it really is. It's the type of headline that a man like Mark Thompson, who is up for a really tough Republican primary just can't afford to have. And the first people to hop on this story were Thompson's Republican opponents in the primary. So there was no attempt to say, "Whoa, whoa, listen, listen to all of these extenuating circumstances." They hopped on and said, "You know, what an abuse of taxpayer dollars! What an example of fraud and abuse!" Um, you know, I mean, another thing you have to remember uh, in Thompson's, I'm not Thompson, I'm sorry, um, in, in, in Commissioner Butler's, Butler. Um, Circumstances that a lot of restaurants were closed downtown. There really was nowhere to eat if people even did want to go out to eat um, for lunch. Uh, they could have brought their lunch, I suppose. Um, but then, uh, uh, you know, he he has his reasons and he has his, I guess, excuses. You could call them as well. Um, but to, uh, to me, in particular, it is going to be absolute fodder for his opponents, and we've heard from all of them who are all gunning for this um, for this position. And while this was all happening, you know, the biggest problem is that Butler has been under fire because thousands and thousands and thousands of people seeking those unemployment benefits, those emergency benefits from the federal government, and the money had gotten to Georgia, but it was not getting to unemployed people during the pandemic when they were struggling. And I think that's the real um, crux of the problem.
1: Yeah, I think that's uh, important, uh, Tammy. Uh, Butler, if he wants to make the case that the idea of bringing lunches into uh, uh, labor offices around the state kept people at their jobs so they could, you know, deal with unemployment claims, that might be kind of okay if those claims had all been processed. But thousands of people, as Patricia said, were not able to get their unemployment claims processed. And in fact, the uh, AJC story on this uh, has photographs of people, of, of notes that were posted on the front door at the G- Georgia Department of Labor from people saying, I cannot get through to your office. I need help. I'm out of work. Please call me and connect with me. So this just is another chapter in a larger problem that Mark Butler faces as he tries to run for re-election, Tammy.
2: Absolutely. It's, it's very interesting that the department that is there um, to help support people to be employed um, and to, you know, is not helping people to get employed. And with those particular funds um, and, you know, the hundreds of thousands of people who had their um, their applications delayed and not processed or even denied, um, you know, suffered. And so the ripple effect of that is real. It's also interesting, you know, to, to hear the notion that, they, um, that he didn't want to expose or have the uh, Department of Labor individuals exposed to COVID, um, then dismisses everyone else, right? So it is it's very fascinating to see um, a very linear uh, view of the people that work for you um, and not that same compassion for the people that you're there to serve. So the
1: public servant part is missing in this equation. You know, Chuck, the the larger story here, to me, what's interesting, of course, is voters really have no patience these days, and not that they ever really did, for what they see as a misuse of government funds to benefit uh, people who work for the state or the federal government. I mean, it's just simply something that voters immediately uh, look upon with real skepticism, right?
3: Right, yeah. And speaking facetiously, I guess he could point out that it was benefiting a Georgia institution, Chick-fil-A. And then the other thing, and this ties into another story out of the AJC, which is about food deserts. Well, uh, I guess at least there wasn't a food desert there at the Department of Labor that they overcame that.
1: Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> we'll watch how that story uh, develops. But it certainly, as Patricia said, is going to play into the uh, uh, election chances of Mark Butler uh, running for uh, another term as labor uh, commissioner. Um, let's turn to the uh, latest on the Texas abortion law. And I wanna get you all to uh, weigh in on this. Um, a, uh, a federal judge in Texas has now halted, at least temporarily, the state's already appealed it, uh, the Texas law, which is, as I think everybody now knows, bans abortions after six weeks of pregnancy, which is the same time period that the Georgia law has in, in, in place. Um, but, of course, the thing that makes it much more uh, unique is that it doesn't authorize state officials To go after people who perform abortions illegally or assist in the performance of abortions illegally. It essentially deputizes citizens to decide to sue anyone involved in an abortion after six weeks. The Texas judge who uh, heard this case initially said it's unconstitutional. It's denied women a long-standing right, Chuck Bullock, that they have had. Uh, He's halted it at least temporarily. Uh, but we'll see what happens to it on appeal. We, here's the other thing that's fascinating about this, Chuck, is that there is one major abortion provider that is now back to performing the procedure for women who really have been backlogged since the law went into effect. But the Texas law has another twist, yeah. which is the ability... They already anticipated the law being potentially stayed. And so they put a provision into it which says that there can be retroactive lawsuits filed if the law is eventually found illegal again. In other words, if you perform an abortion right now while the law is halted and it's uh, and, and the higher courts put it back in place, you can be sued for the abortion that took place while the law was suspended. Chuck,
3: yeah, that is that is a particularly curious provision there because uh you know, it's kind of time out, but whatever happens during the time out is still going to count. Now, the basis of the decision handed down by that federal district court judge is to find that what the legislature passed is unconstitutional. That is in conflict with the interpretation of the Ninth Amendment, which goes back to the Roe decision. Uh, so this is one of those cases which I suspect we're going to have to wait for the Supreme Court to rule on, which certainly the Fifth Circuit will rule on and perhaps rule on it very quickly. That's a very conservative circuit, and so it might align itself back with the legislature, which would then mean you know, that abortions cannot legally be performed there in Texas uh, beyond the sixth week of a pregnancy. But the final decision, if it goes to the Supreme Court, then we're really talking about sometime you know, more than a year from now before we'll get a final resolution. And um, you know whether that would then be stayed again by uh, Justice of the Supreme Court or whether you know, it's all going to be, everything comes to a stop. It's, we don't know. It's I means everything's up in the air, and that means that also with the Georgia legislature enacted back in, what, I believe it was 2019, is also still very much in the up in the air, although there will be a decision later on during this term, probably not until the spring, with regard to the Mississippi re- provision, which is really much more probably in line with the Georgia provision and what Texas has done.
1: Um, Patricia, the judge in Texas was very, very firm in uh, his in the, the opinion that he wrote, it's 113 pages long. He uh, he says uh, from the moment SB8 was went into effect, women have been unlawfully prevented from exercising control over their lives in ways that are protected by the Constitution. This court will not sanction one more day of this offensive deprivation of such an important right. Very powerful uh, decision. Uh, which, of course, makes uh, people who believe in choice happy, uh, but the backlash from the uh, uh, pro-life uh, forces is going to is continues to be pretty powerful too.
0: Yeah, of course. I mean, I think the law um, has two effects. You know, immediately, it is designed to really isolate women. To make sure that nobody will help them do what they feel like they need to do, nobody will help them uh, uh, go to an appointment or come home for an appointment or make a phone call, um, and that really puts these women um, really all alone. And that, that's what I what I read into the the judge's decision. Um, the other thing is that the the Texas law in particular is clearly designed as a legal test. It's sort of a legal jitsu, the way it's written, so that it would not come under the traditional objections that you see come up in, in most abortion legislation. And so while it is a legal test, the, te- the judge is saying, the the legal piece of this will play out as it will. But in the meantime, this is legal. This is something that is a woman's right, in his opinion, and under existing law and previous law and constitutionally. And in the meantime, this is what needs to happen. Um, one other quick note that, and again, it's that little legal ease that the Texas bill has that says that it would be retroactive, all punishments retroactive, if that is applied to all law in Texas or if that piece is found constitutional, can you imagine what that does to the legal system? While stays are in place, can you go back and then punish people while that was happening when they believed it was legal? So it's to me, it's just a gigantic can of legal worms, but with consequences for women that are very, very real and timely.
1: Uh, Tammy, you want to weigh
2: in? Uh, Patricia, thank you so much. Um, and uh, to to add, um, I find it uh, most fascinating the uh, vast majority <laughs> of the um, legislatures and the executive branch, the governors, are um, are men putting control over women's bodies. Um, and I I I think that sometimes that part gets lost. Um, that you know we have to have reasons. Um, as we're not over, we don't have the autonomy to to say yes or no to what happens to ourselves. And uh, for there to be, you know, exceptions as if, um, you know, that makes it okay um, for there to be these restrictions, um, I find to be uh, interesting and I'm curious as to how um, women in particular in the country, regardless of your, Um, political affiliation or your thoughts on this matter, um, it's just bodily autonomy. And as the majority uh, gender in the country, um, or even just looking at uh, the country overall, um, if if conservatives in particular are uh, concerned about governmental overreach, how is this not governmental overreach in all of the different components um, into the personal lives of women? Um, why are women the exception to this governmental overreach onto um, how we can conduct our bodies? Um, so I find the, the entire conversation fascinating.
1: I, I do think it's important. I think what you've said, thank you for that, Tammy. And I know it's a position that, that many, many women who are pro-choice take. I, but I also think we have to always say that some of the leaders of the uh, anti-choice, who are anti-abortion movement, have been very powerful women in their own right. As a young reporter back up in Chicago, because I really was a young reporter at one point, uh, (laughs) the uh, life of Phyllis, I covered Phyllis Schlafly uh, very carefully, the the, the far right-wing conservative who started an entire movement built around her opposition uh, to abortion. So it does cut both ways, and I I don't ever want to forget that when we talk about abortion. Chuck, uh, the other thing, let's bring it home to Georgia. You're welcome to weigh in as you want, but let me add to what we're going to talk about. We have to remember that at least one member of Republican in the legislature is saying he wants to introduce a measure in Georgia quite similar to the Texas law when the session picks up. And the other thing we should remind people is that the Georgia law, the six-week heartbeat law, has been Uh, held up by a federal judge who says, I'm not doing anything to allow this law to go into effect until after the Supreme Court rules on the Mississippi case, which they hear December 1st. Chuck, go ahead.
3: Yeah, well, this applies, I think, to both Georgia and to Texas, and that is that the share of the American public who is in favor of completely banning abortion is a very small share. Uh, And therefore, these efforts may prove to be detrimental to the Republican Party because they're staking out positions which are likely to mobilize uh, women, and particularly that swing group of white, well-educated suburban women. We know Georgia is very much of a purple state. We've seen that. Uh, People in Texas that I talked to thought that 2020 might also be a swing year for them, and Texas Democrats did well in 2018. They didn't do that particularly well in 2020, but by pushing these kinds of bills, which are very popular with a chunk of the Republican base, it may prove you know, detrimental to the GOP in the long run in terms of mobilizing voters who would say, no, you've gone too far. You know, maybe you have some limitations, but you know, you're, you know, we're not in favor of seeing this banned entirely. So they say this may, may, may backfire.
1: Yeah, uh that that's it may help you in a primary. Uh yep. a Republican primary helps
3: you in the primary, the, but then you yeah. cannot back off of in the general election.
1: Yeah, then we'll see what you do in a general all right, let's do this. I thank you. Boy, we got a lot covered in the first segment of the show today, and we still have a lot more I'd love to talk about after we stop for these messages. <laughs> Clark Atlantis, Tammy Greer, University of Georgia's Charles Bullock, and the AJC's Patricia Murphy on uh, the show today. Uh, Patricia, I really want to, in a couple minutes, turn to uh, to you to talk about a, a, your final column on your tour of the state of Georgia, but looking at the, the politics of the state and Um, and finding interesting things about the places you visited. And Chuck, I'm really eager to talk to you a little bit about redistricting. Let's do one thing rather quickly. Patricia, Butch Miller has found himself under fire for comments he made on a talk show hosted by a guy named Brian Pritchard. I'm not familiar with Brian Pritchard, Um, but you reported in the Jolt yesterday that Pritchard asked uh, Miller a question about tax policy, and you call it a wonky question. And instead of answering that, here's what Butch Miller said. Quote, We have attracted many people to the state of Georgia that don't think like us. We need to make sure we are attracting people to Georgia that do think like us. And if they don't think like us, they need to assimilate into our values and our culture. Um. He was immediately slammed, of course, by dem- mostly Democrats uh, for being xenophobic, for making comments that sounded like they could be racist. What do you make of this kind of, you know, improvisation that Butch engaged in uh, on this show? Well, so um, it's puzzling
0: because um, our audience may not uh, know more well he's seen in
1: so, Patricia, we're having we're having oops. real problems with your phone right now. Could you try oh, again?
0: Yes. I, there you better. go. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so, I was saying, for our audience who's not familiar with Butch Miller, he at the state capitol is seems quite mainstream, uh, extremely gregarious, very friendly. Um, and we reached out to his team because we saw this quote, heard this quote, and um, said, "Wow." Um, this is this sounds kind of out there. Is this, is this what he meant? And they're like, yes, that's what he meant. Why would that not be what he meant? Um, and so I think there is something going on here. Not, you know, not especially that Butch Miller is trying to um, uh, not say something that he doesn't believe, because I think he does believe that. Um, but he's also in this Republican primary uh, for lieutenant governor against Burt Jones. Bert Jones has already been endorsed by President Trump, and once your opponent is endorsed by President Trump, you are speaking only to the GOP base and to the Trump voters. Even that you need to win over somehow, some way. Um, and so, for a lot of these statewide candidates, including Butch Miller, they are used to uh, zero to no press coverage of their runs for uh, mm-hmm. state house mm-hmm. and state senate. And once they're in these statewide primaries, especially now that Georgia is at the center of national politics they're getting a spotlight that is so much hotter than the, anything they've ever uh, experienced. And I think Miller and others are going to either need to adjust or just understand that when they say things like this, it's going to be on the front page of the paper.
1: You know, it's not quite quite clear, I don't think, exactly who Butch Miller was talking about, Tammy. But unfortunately, it comes at a time when there are Republicans um, and conservatives like Tucker Carlson spending an awful lot of time talking about replacement theory, this notion that Democrats are trying to replace white voters with people of color and immigrants who will tend to vote Democratic. Now, I'm not suggesting Butch Miller is in that camp. We don't know. But unfortunately, it's hard not to listen, look at those words, and and at least wonder what's happening here.
2: Well, it sounds replacement theory adjacent, right? Um, And when it comes to what Professor Bullock said earlier about um, short term versus long term, you may, you know, gain points in the primary. What does that do to the electorate overall? What does it do in the general election? How will that play out? Um, And while we could um, say that, um, you know, that there is, you know, a a dog whistle to people who are non-white Southerners, um, that also brings in – we also leave out those that are white um, from, you know, the northeast or white from the, the west. And so you are also negating those individuals as well. So it's not just an ethnic thing um, or a racial thing. It's also, you know, people from other regions of the country. And, you know, with the economics and the, um, the PR that Georgia is doing in order to attract tech companies – in order to attract the the film and movie industry, then this is what you're going to expect to get people who have different thoughts from around the, the country.
1: Chuck?
3: Yeah, Bill, here's the irony, I think, in that statement, and that is that 40 or 50 years ago, Herman Talmadge might have said the same thing. Because if you think back to it, where did the early Republicans come from? Well, Newt Gingrich he wasn't from Georgia. Uh, Mac he came down here from Indiana. Uh, Paul Coverdale came here from Missouri. Uh, John Linder. So yeah, I mean this is part of what happens when you're a growing state like Georgia is. You know we grow not because we're having so many babies but because this isn't a place where you come because you think you're going to be able to get a better job, a better lifestyle. And, you know, our businesses are certainly very glad to welcome in folks who are moving from the Northeast, from Texas, from wherever else and say, hey, we're glad to have you here. Spend your money, buy your house, build your business here. So, yeah, uh, this notion that you know, we're going to put up the walls around Georgia, or that we're going to have some kind of test of, you know, what your beliefs are. And if you don't answer the questions correctly, we're going to send you back home. It's never worked. And indeed, for the economy, the state, we don't want it to work.
1: Professor Bullock, thank you for confirming my introduction of you by saying there are few people who have the history of Georgia politics (laughs) quite the way uh, you do. Uh, Thank you for that. Uh, Chuck, while the ball's in your court, let's start talking <laughs> a little bit about redistricting, which starts uh, beginning of November down at the Capitol. I mean, they're already, I guess, starting to look at uh, maps, and we know we've seen one congressional map emerge so far. But but Chuck, I want to ask you f- for your thoughts and then bring everybody else in. Fair District Georgia, an organization that's uh, trying to uh, oversee, make sure that Georgians don't uh, deal with uh, the worst forms of gerrymandering, uh, is working with uh, Princeton and their redistricting, their gerrymandering project. And they, if I got this right, Chuck, between Princeton and Fair District Georgia ran like a million versions of legislative maps through computers to come up with some norms as to how much of a shift we could expect if districts are drawn fairly in the, in the redistricting mm. process. I think I've got that right so far. Right. And then right. let me just give you the figures and you mm. tell me what. According to, to their uh, norms that they've created, their benchmark ranges, mm. they say that fair drawing of the maps should give Republicans anywhere from 92 to 99 districts and Democrats anywhere from 81 to 88 districts in the state House. So they say Republicans still have the larger share of districts. And in the state Senate, they say Republicans should expect anywhere from 28 to 32 districts, Democrats 24 to 28 districts. And what they point out is the gap has narrowed since the last census. So what do you make of all those figures, and do they tell us anything (laughs) that we should be thinking about
3: yeah, what the uh, folks up in Princeton do is they program certain standards in, so you equalize the population, make sure the district's are contiguous, et cetera, et cetera, and then just you know let the let the computer run all night, and then you get something like a normal distribution. And what they're talking about are you know what the most common uh, n- numbers are. They come up I mean, about 98 percent of the time is covered by these ranges. Um, so, yeah, what their their expectation is, uh, is that if these are drawn fairly, that, that the partisan thumb is not too heavy on the scale, that Democrats are going to pick up a few seats. Now, interestingly, again, if we go back in time and we look at when Democrats were drawing districts back in the back in that last century, uh, Republicans usually picked up a few seats after each of those, even though Democrats were very much in charge of, of the drawing Uh but let me introduce the, the, something which relates to this map that you mentioned earlier, which is you know, by no means the, the final map. It's really a kind of a first cut. It's a Republican cut, and it showed a 9-5 a split, so that Republicans would take back one district, and, indeed, under that plan would probably be the 6th district. Interestingly, what the uh, folks up at Princeton came up with was that a fair plan would result in either 8 or 9 Republican districts. So on this first mm-hmm. cut, you know, this it's In with what they kind of say would be what to be expected. What I've been saying for some time is that with regard to the state legislature, that Republicans, if they act conservatively, uh, would give Democrats some seats. Because, you know, keep in mind, when you're drawing these districts, you're not just saying, well, what's going to work for us in 2022 or 2024? Really, what you're trying to do is see around the corner and over the hill and anticipate what may take place during this entire decade. So the map's may well be in place until 2030, and so a party drawing maps is trying to figure out how can we continue to hold our majority, and so by cutting losses here at the beginning of the decade and probably giving Democrats some of those districts on the north side of metro Atlanta, where Republicans narrowly held on in 2018 and 2020, and extracting Republicans from some of those districts and packing them into the district maybe just north of them, then you create a more Republican district just just there, and you say, okay, Democrats, we're going to give you some, but we think in our long term, it's going to work out to give Republicans control for a decade. Republicans were pretty good at this in 2011. Uh, they didn't really suffer any losses until 2018. So, yeah, they had three good elections out of this, and then at that point, their ability to have seen you know, well into the distance weakened a bit, which is, again, not surprising. So we may anticipate the same kind of thing playing out in the 2020s.
1: Um Patricia, I know numbers are hard on the radio, so I apologize to our listeners, but but let me give you some more anyway, and these are kind of straightforward. According to the, these, these maps that they whipped through a computer, they've concluded that if you have a fair redistricting process, anywhere from a low end of nine to a high end of 22 House seats should be competitive uh, in the next election cycle, and in the Senate— Uh, On a low end, one, and on a high end, seven districts ought to be competitive. So what's interesting about that is the range tells you just how important it is for each party to draw lines that they think are going to favor them as much as possible. And and also pointing out that Bullock is right, you know, you want to give a little to, to get somewhere in the long run.
0: Yes. Well, first of all, I want to say that Dr. Bullock's insight about predicting population changes over time is so interesting. Most people I've never heard anybody say that. And it's such a great point. And I'm sure you've noticed the whole time, Dr. Bullock. But thank you for that insight. Um, What else I've really found by talking to lawmakers and really digging into this process um, is how much of this uh, on the on the margins is not driven by numbers. It's really driven in many cases by personalities by favors, by feuds, by um, uh, somebody ready to get out of the legislature, or somebody else just getting there and wanting to stay in. There they're, they're they're are little pieces of, of not data that goes into it, even above and beyond uh, the power structure and the power struggle. Um, and then also uh, just how crucial those state, House, and Senate legislative lines are. I think most people's, most regular people's attention is on the congressional lines and um, and the process that's being drawn by state lawmakers. The state lawmakers' fate is most important to them, and so that, to me, has mm. been um, an insight in talking to people that I, I think it is not abundantly clear if you're just watching the process from the outside. So there's so much more that goes into it, and the last thing, of course, are uh, the legal requirements um, for these districts. It's not going to require pre from the Department of Justice, mm. but it does have to meet requirements on uh, the federal level, um, not to be abusive, um, not to be unrepresentative of minority populations as well. And those those districts have to pass a certain threshold for that as well, but wouldn't necessarily be, you know, the first choice of Republican lawmakers drawing these lines if they could do it any old way they wanted.
1: Well, Tammy, uh, Patricia just gave me uh, the uh, opening to ask you about just that. The Again, these, these many maps that were drawn to just show a range of how you can manipulate lines, maneuver lines. Uh, the uh, conclusion that Princeton and Fair District reached is that the state house should have at least 48 black majority districts um, and at least 16 black majority uh, Senate districts. And then they also add some black influence districts as well.
2: Yeah. And and that goes to the population shift inside the state, too. Right. So if we look at the census and we look at the population shift, then um, <laughs> we can see how that can play out um, in some of the areas. Um, it will also be interesting to see about the Latino population and the influence of the Latino population, particularly in Metro Atlanta, um, and the Asian population as well. So, um, you know, all of that plays a role. I also want to note that, um, you know, I know that sometimes redistricting can be an overwhelming conversation um, to us non political nerds. At the same time, it has a, a, a ripple effect, right? So we were just discussing um, these anti-abortion laws. We were just discussing the impact of elections, and all of that has um, is the result of um, our maps um, and the way and how and who is elected on the state and the local level. So, you know, while um, to the point that the fate of some of these lawmakers are at play, it is also the fate of, you know, state and local politics and policies that have a large impact on our lives every day. So we should pay attention, even though it's a wonky conversation.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but a crucial conversation. A crucial conversation. Bull. All right. Let's do this. Um, we will be talking a lot about redistricting as uh, maps begin to continue to emerge, as the session starts. And I'm looking forward to those conversations with uh, the panels that we'll uh, have on. And, uh, and, and, and so you'll hear a lot more about this as the weeks go by. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way, because when we come back, I want to talk, give Patricia Murphy a chance to talk about what she learned over her 2,500 or so miles of traveling across the state, talking to real people. This is Political Rewind. Patricia Murphy, three months, eight trips, 2,400 miles, and you say enough fried food to kill a person. (laughs) So uh, give us a... Give us an overview. Uh, I don't want to do a spoiler. You, You talk about one conclusion you reached, which was distressing to you. Tell us what the most important points were as you made this tour of the state.
0: Well, so uh, I do want to note quickly that before I even took a road trip, I went to see Dr. Bullock in Athens uh, to uh, just get Mm -hmm. the lay of the land generally in politics. Uh, That was really my first primer. Um, Mm -hmm. But then I uh, wanted to do this road trip to really get to know lawmakers, but then also voters and um, really see what the issues are, especially outside of Atlanta, because those drive those statewide elections so much. And when you get outside of Atlanta, you just have a view of these uh, lawmakers and leaders that is not so heavily influenced by their political affiliations. Um, they're really closer to their voters and closer to their problems. Um, and my big takeaway, and it was actually disappointing and sad as somebody who really loves politics, mm-hmm. is that the further you get away in Georgia from politics in Washington and even politics at the state capitol, um, it is easier to solve problems, and so we've gotten to the point where politics are not mm-hmm. a road uh, to solve problems, but that politics itself is the problem. And it uh, away from a political conversation, I met mayors who were able to both raise uh, wages and funding for the police, but also invest in mental health and also build a new homeless shelter. Um, and you can see uh, a lot of the same problems in the same, in very different parts of the state. So very liberal parts, uh, conservative parts of Macon, for example, um, in an urban area, and then up in Blue Ridge, which is very conservative, um, and then uh, down all along uh, sort of the more rural parts of South Georgia. There's a real problem with crime everywhere around the state. There are huge struggles with mental health. And mental health services and shortages all across the state um, and uh, even food deserts we talk about um, uh, not having a grocery store when you lose your grocery store that is really the death knell for a town or a neighborhood in a large city and i heard that over and over again as well and so there's so many of these problems that if people could park their politics at the door and not think about uh what the dscc and the nrsc up in washington said that morning um, or the National Government Association, you could really start to dig into these problems. But there's just a disincentive right now in, in the political conversation to solve problems and an incentive to blow them up and um, fundraise off of them.
1: I think that's an important insight. I mean, you you to the, the closer we are to the people, the more likely it is that political leaders are working on problems they can solve. You quote the new mayor of, uh, Macon Lester Miller, who said to you, "I can only control what I can in Macon Bibb County as the mayor, and we're going to do right by people regardless of partisan politics. It reminds me Chuck Bullock, uh, Mayor Julie Smith of Tifton is a frequent panelist on our show. Mm-hmm. And when we start talking about partisan politics, she is identifies as a Republican, but when we get into uh, issues that really have a heart a partisan bent, uh, Mayor Smith always says, I'd really rather talk about potholes. <laughs> and that's kind of what Patricia found out.
3: Well, exactly right. And There's no partisan way to, to fix potholes or probably improve schools or the, all of those local problems, which are so much closer to the average citizen. The average citizen lives with these problems. They know the local office holder. They don't run into their U.S. Senator or member of Congress that often. So you know, the things which really impact their lives do take place and are governed by these individuals who are very accessible to that that citizen
1: tammy
2: so um i've always said that rural voters and urban voters have the same Mm. challenges we just speak in different languages um so if we can actually speak um the the language of of what of the challenge and and not the political language Um, then we can uh, uh, move this needle forward. Um, So the humanitarian part sometimes is missing out of our politics. And if we can get to that, we'll be good.
1: Um, I think, uh, uh, Sarah Callis, can we post a link to Patricia's tour of the state on uh, our social media? That's terrific because people really ought uh, to read it. Um, We're out of time. I can't believe how many topics this panel took on today. It's been a busy week in politics, and uh, Patricia Murphy, Tammy Greer, Chuck Bullock, you really, really uh, got down to it and helped us, uh, helped illuminate a lot of things going on. And, and for that, I am really grateful. So thank you all so much for a terrific conversation uh, today. Uh, we're out of time. But, of course, uh, oh, we're not going to be here on Monday. I'm glad I remembered to say that. We're going to give the team a three-day holiday. uh, And uh, Monday, celebrate, call it what you will, Indigenous Peoples Day, which some people now call it. Others continue to call it Columbus Day. I leave it to you. Um, But we're going to take the day off. NPR will provide a program for us. So we'll be back on Tuesday with another brand-new edition of Political Rewind. In the meantime, have a great weekend. Take care. Stay healthy. Please continue to wear a mask when you're around a lot of people, especially indoors. Um, Tell your friend who hasn't gotten a COVID vaccine, it's really time to do it to make us all feel safer. And go down the street to your local drugstore and get your flu shot this weekend, too. That's another easy thing to do. See you all next week.